Can you relate to this? You've made a commitment to yourself and maybe even to your family that you aren't drinking anymore. You are consistently reminding yourself you're going to be more committed than ever. You've started some morning rituals to keep you on track. And you know in your head this time has to be different. And so far you've done pretty well. Maybe you've made it a week or a month, maybe even a few months. Then one day you're cruising through your day, minding your own business, and out of nowhere you're hit with a craving for a drink. And it's powerful. You try to tell yourself to ignore it, distract yourself, you think it'll go away, but it feels like it's getting stronger. And the stronger it gets, the more you start to panic. All the thoughts flying through your head a thousand miles an hour. What am I going to do? How am I going to get through this? Is one drink going to kill me? Should I just have one? Should I not have one? Should I call somebody? Cravings can be one of the most challenging pieces of living a sober lifestyle, romanticizing the past, romanticizing the drink, the nostalgia of it, and all the comfort it once gave you. All of this together can create an emotional whirlwind. Over the last 15 plus years, I've helped literally thousands of people completely change their lives and get out of this unhealthy relationship with alcohol. And dealing with cravings is a part of the process for all of us. You're about to listen to something a little different on the show today. It's not our typical guest interview format. And don't worry, those aren't going anywhere. We're just taking an episode to bring you something even more special, I think. We have some incredibly talented people in the recovery alcohol-free podcast world, and today's guest is one of your favorites. We have Jill Teets from the Sober Powered Podcast. She is a fan favorite in the podcast world and an inspiration for countless people on their journey to sobriety. And she and I got together for an episode specifically to talk about cravings. You're going to hear our personal experiences with cravings, how we got through them, and you'll probably be pretty surprised when you hear how different it was for the two of us. We had very different experiences. We'll tell you what was challenging. We talk about the importance of feeling safe during this journey and this part of the journey. And we also talk about some of the dangers of experimenting with non-alcoholic drinks. And these drinks might seem totally harmless, and sometimes they are, but they can also trigger memories and trigger feelings of being left out or feeling different. And all of that together can trigger cravings, and all of that can derail your progress. Let's dive in. Hey, everybody, welcome to the Addiction Unlimited podcast, where you get to learn everything you want to know about addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Angela Pugh, co-founder of Kansas City Recovery, life coach, and recovering alcoholic. To learn more about me, you can listen to episode zero on your podcast app or find us on the web at addictionunlimited.com. Angela, I'm so happy that we're doing this collaboration today. I know. This is super exciting. Totally outside the box, different from our norm. But yeah, I'm super excited to get into this conversation. And I thought a perfect topic for us was cravings because I see that coming up over and over and over on social media and people struggling to get through the first like week or the first month because cravings are just kicking their butts. 
Yeah, the big, bad, craving monster. It does. This is a huge topic in everything. I see it. Same thing all over social media. I'm most active in my Facebook group, really showing my age there. But this is a topic that just comes up continuously, right? It's like, how do I fight through this? What does this mean? And I think too, that a lot of people think they're doing something wrong if they're still having cravings. Have you experienced that? Yeah, they think that there's a problem that they shouldn't be feeling that ever. And they also think that sobriety is just about resisting it for all time. Like you're just faced with cravings forever and you just have to white knuckle it and resist. And you can only resist for so long before you give in. Yeah, for sure. That's not a sustainable plan. (laughs) Before we get more into cravings, I thought for anyone who didn't know either of us, we could just introduce ourselves really quick. So do you want to take it away? I'd love to. I'm Angela Pugh. I'm the host of the Addiction Unlimited podcast. I'm also a life coach and a very busy entrepreneur. And I got sober in 2006 and have been working in addiction for 15, a little over 15 years now. Your podcast was one of the ones that I was listening to actually when I was struggling to get sober and when I first like committed to the journey because um, I thought you were really cool. I saw you on the cover and I was like, she's cool. I want to be more like her. <laughs> so I should listen to her show. Perfect. Whatever it takes. <laughs> right. But I'm Jill for anyone that doesn't know me. I got sober in 2019 and I host the Sober Powered podcast where I use my science background to explain how alcohol affects the brain and why it is so difficult for us to quit and realize that we need to quit. And then I'm also an adjunct chemistry professor at a college in Boston. I'm curious also about your getting sober experience too and your experience with cravings. What caused them the most for you? Like, did you just have them because you did? Or did you notice like a a theme that made them pop up in your life? Yeah, definitely. I'll tell you, honestly, I did not have cravings like I wanted to drink because my rock bottom moment was pretty dramatic for me when I knew that I wasn't drinking anymore, like I wasn't drinking anymore, period. There was nothing you could do to make me have a drink. However, that doesn't mean that my brain shut off all of its rituals and routines and habits, right? So I typically started drinking about eight o'clock. I was a bartender. So my hours and my life was very different, right? Like I got home from work at four or 5am a lot of nights. So I slept a lot of the day. So when I say I typically start drinking at 8pm, like that's when I'm like going to work, you know, that's kind of lunchtime in my life, you know. And so it was eight o'clock that I usually would start sneaking my first drinks. And because at, at the bar, like most bars, you can drink as a bartender, depending on the establishment, but you can't typically drink that early, right? They're like, yeah, toward the end of the night, you can start having drinks, but you have so much to do as a bartender. You got to be able to count your money and clean up and do all that stuff. So they don't want you wasted at the end of the night. So I would have to sneak in, in those earlier hours. And when I quit drinking, Every night at eight o'clock, my brain 
would start chattering at me. <laughs> it's eight o'clock. Are we going to drink? Do you want to have a drink? Should we drink? <laughs> and I had a little stash of like Dixie cups in the cooler, back in the cooler where I could go pour myself shots. And there would be my brain. Your Dixie cups are still in the cooler. You could just go get a shot. Nobody will know. <laughs> and I had no desire. Oh, really that's the worst one. Yeah, like I really didn't want to drink, but my brain, that habit was so powerful. So I would say for me, that was probably the more difficult part was just fighting through the habit of it because I didn't really want to have a drink. I think that's really interesting. And when I quit, I also accepted like I'm done this is the end of the story. I can't go back to this. Like I felt like it was a life or death situation. So I, I knew I wasn't going to drink no matter what. And I think that acceptance helped me fight the cravings too. Because even if I, I was a big romanticizer. So I wanted to drink on vacation. I wanted to drink no matter what. But those were the ones that were tougher for me in sobriety. Like, how can you go on vacation and not drink the whole week. Like what, what, what else would you do? Or like wanting to drink to celebrate things like that. But going back to that acceptance that I can never do it again without risking my life. I think that helped the cravings not be very intense. I did have really big urges. I've had four moments in the past three and a half years where I had a giant urge to drink and it was always work related and it was always something unexpected that made me feel really bad about myself and then really, really angry. And those would set off big cravings, but then still like just knowing I can't do it didn't let the craving progress. Like I felt like I was right at the the entry point of the craving where I had it, my mind was like, alcohol is going to fix this problem if you drink it. But then I'm like, I can't though. And, and it never went and spiraled into like the bargaining and, and all the other things that we do or fighting it for hours. Do you feel like your acceptance when you quit helped you not have too many cravings? Yeah, for sure. And it was really, I was so grateful to leave that life behind. That was a huge part too, right? Like I had worn out the fun. It was not fun anymore. It hadn't been fun for a long time. So I didn't feel like I was missing out on anything. For me, it was more like, oh, thank God that's over. And that literally was the first thought I had the first morning I woke up that I knew I would never drink again. That was my first thought is thank God that's over. Like I just wanted away from it so badly. It took something extravagant to get me to that place of acceptance, right? Where it's like, okay, stop screwing around. You can think about this, talk about it. You can take your 30 day breaks for the next 20 years, right? But I was done screwing around. And that's what I say when people come to me to work with me. I'm like, I'm the person you come to when you're done screwing around. When you're done with the yo-yo, you're done with the dry Julys and sober Octobers and dry Januaries where you really know you're going to drink again. You know, when you're just done, because that's the point I had to get to, to not want it, you know? So for me, it was like, it was more like my enemy. I didn't want it in my body for sure, because it had turned on me. It's like, it tried to frame me 
murder. You know, like I got in a car accident and I almost cost somebody else their life. And I'm like, wow, you turned on me like alcohol turned on me and tried to frame me for this crime. (laughs) And like, I really like you too. But if you tried to frame me, I wouldn't hang out with you anymore either. You know, like it just made sense to me. Like we can't be friends anymore. I don't want you in my life. Like it was a breakup. You know, I just, I don't want you in my life anymore, period. But it doesn't take away the the familiarity of it and the comfort of it, right? Just like sugar and cigarettes and all the other things we do to harm ourselves. There is a certain comfort there. There's a reward or we wouldn't continue to do it. And sober vacations is huge. Yeah, vacations were hard because I always drank like a crazy person on vacation because I didn't have to work. <laughs> so I would just drink all day and all night. And it's like, Isn't that the point? Like, aren't you supposed to just start as soon as you wake up until you're ready to go to sleep? Isn't that or until you pass out, I guess. But that was really hard for me. And I think it's funny because I see myself as the person who helps people make that journey faster from like all the breaks and the dry January. I see my my work as I accelerate that process for them. So I love that you're that person at the end that's like, let's go. Acceptance, it's time to quit. So we're a good team. Yes, for sure. What do you think for you was the hardest part? Like you talked about traveling and I see this a lot with my sober living houses too. When guys in my sober houses will go on a vacation, like if they're flying, I always have to have an extra level of awareness with that because that is a trigger for so many people. I think because I was a bartender. So like my whole life really revolved around drinking. I didn't like one event or situation was no more triggering than the other, right? Like I kind of lived like a savage for so long, you know, up all night, the whole thing, like all I did was drink. So I didn't necessarily have those situational things that were extra triggering, but I definitely see that all the time. And people, certainly my clients, you know, will have some stress about going on vacation and what's that going to be like. But the other thing I'll say, and I wonder if you've had this experience too, as some of my clients too will be like, oh my gosh, like packing and getting ready for the vacation was so much easier when I wasn't so consumed with the drinking part of it. And I was like, wow, I never thought of that. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh my God, no way. It's easier to pack when you're not drunk. Though. <laughs> right. I was working like a normal, like nine to five job for most of my life. So I used to take a certain amount of vacation time. And on my last day of work before the vacation, that would be time to celebrate, aka get as drunk as you can to make sure that the first day of your vacation really sucks and you're hungover. And that would also be packing day. So I'd, oh, we're just going to go to the bar and celebrate or whatever. And then we'll pack. And I never, I always intended to moderate or not get too drunk, but I had no control. And I'd have to be like packing drunk at the last minute, forget something every single time without fail. Everything's just like smooshed in there and wrinkled. And same thing when I would leave the vacation, last night, best night, right? So you have to go really hard. And then I just stuff everything in the bag and... I wouldn't even unpack for weeks. Sometimes I would leave my bag and I'd take out the essentials like my makeup and shower stuff. I'd take that out and I'd leave the bag like right in the front 
entryway of my house, like still packed with stuff. And I just wouldn't put it away because I didn't and care enough yeah. to like take care of my environment. Yeah. When you don't have any energy, it's not like you're functioning at your optimum level either. So I'm doing sober travel now, which is something I've has been on my bucket list forever. I'm super excited about because so many people struggle with this, right? And how nice to go on a sober vacation and just not have to even think about it. Because I did that when I was just 10 months sober, I went on a sober cruise. And I remember this kid next to me, I don't know if you've ever been on a cruise, but like when you're leaving, everybody's on the dock and you're waving from the boat and whatever. And this kid next to me was in the sober group. And, and of course, all the servers are walking around passing out cocktails. And the kid next to me is like, oh my God, that cocktail looks so good. And I remember I go, why? Like, so you can over drink, make an ass of yourself, be hung over tomorrow, not get to do any of the fun stuff and feel like crap. And he started laughing and he was there with his parents and his parents had brought him to celebrate like his one year, but he was really young and his parents were laughing too. And they were like, thank you for that reminder. And he was like, yeah, I really needed that. I was like, that's just the reality. <laughs> you know, like, is that what you want to do on your sober vacay is be wasted and feel like crap? Yeah, I think a big part of it is that we're not making those associations. We still have alcohol is fun. Like sometimes um, in my membership community in our meetings, we talk about like celebrating. You think about popping a bottle of champagne. That's what you associate it with. And we have these beliefs that alcohol is fun and it's pretty and relaxing and it's what everybody else does. And it's hard to make the actual true association, which was all the things that you were saying. And I think until people can do that, the cravings are going to be a little bit more difficult. Like we have to get past this block where we only see the good, like the toxic boyfriend that treats you horribly. And you keep thinking that you're the one that's going to change gonna, yes, this He's going to be different for me. <laughs> you're so right though, because it is like, and think about how many times, certainly unhealthy, right? Like I would never do this today, but when I was an unhealthy person, for sure, like think about how many times you would break up, make up, you know, or fight and make up or break up and go back to them. Like we do that. It's exactly what we do with alcohol. It's that toxic relationship and it takes several times before you finally get it through your thick head that this is not a good match. <laughs> but I think too, that's one of the reasons I'm grateful that my rock bottom moment was so crazy because it did just seal the deal for me. But also that my last couple of years of drinking had gotten so dark and depressed and just ugly that I didn't associate alcohol with fun anymore. There was no fun. I was a prisoner at that point. I was trapped. I was a hostage. So walking away from it felt more like a relief. I didn't even have the opportunity to romanticize it as if it was still fun because it was so gross. Yeah, you got the point. <laughs> yes. And I feel for the gray area type drinkers that it's hard for them to get to those rock bottom moments or having something truly horrible happen. And it's amazing, like the things that we can excuse as being not consequences, even though they're pretty significant, like missing work or having a fight with your partner or having a bad relationship with your kids 
or having your partner leave you or like we excuse these things as like, I don't have that many consequences. It's not like I have a DUI or live under a bridge. And that's the only criteria. And I really feel for those people. If your partner has to lie for you because you're missing family functions or important events and they're covering and making up excuses like, yeah, those are that's weird. There's not a non-alcoholic person on the planet that's dealing with that situation, you know? Yeah. Or in my case, I used to embarrass myself all over the world, really, with my poor husband who was so good to me, but he was probably really embarrassed too. I'm about to go on a cruise actually in a couple days. And I was reflecting on my last drinking cruise that he and I went on together. And I was thinking about some shameful memories from that trip. I had just done 90 days and I was cured afterwards and I was going to be okay to drink again. The only person on the planet that's ever been cured. Perfect. (laughs) I was actually the first one to be cured in thousands of years of trying and I I believed it. And I went on the cruise and I, I was actually not cured. But for years, I've always thought about it as like, my embarrassing moments, but I bet my husband was pretty embarrassed too to just have to participate in that or have that like be his wife, that drunk lady. And that's a really big consequence too, having my husband feel embarrassed just to be in those situations that I put us in. I was going to ask you too, like, how was it in the beginning for you, how did quitting drinking affect your relationship? And like, does he have, you know, a beer or a glass of wine with dinner? And does that trigger cravings for you? Like, how did you navigate all of that? Yeah, that's a great question. So my husband does drink occasionally. He's one of those people that can have half a drink and be satisfied. Sometimes he'll leave the... He's a terrible alcoholic. Right? I don't know why he does it. Like sometimes he'll leave the drink, like half a drink behind at the restaurant. And he'll say to me, like, I'm not trying to get a buzz on. And it's like, literally, what are you doing then? (laughs) Why are you drinking, (laughs) weirdo? (laughs) You're not trying to get... Like, are you sure? Because that's the best thing ever. His exp- that's the whole point. <laughs> I know. That's Why would you not want to do that? But we laugh about things like that a lot. And we laugh about kind of the way that my brain works and the way that I think about alcohol. And he's been really supportive of me. I asked him to not drink with me in the beginning, which I know not every partner is going to be able to do that. But he... As someone who doesn't care either way, he took a few weeks off with me. And then I also told him, like, I never want you to drink wine around me because that was my drink. And I knew that that would make me feel FOMO and sad, especially the ritual in the restaurants. Like, I always considered myself like a fancy wine drinker, even though I absolutely was not. But I was trying to play that game to, I'm not a problem drinker, I'm a fancy (laughs) Mine kind of sore. So I just didn't want to watch him continue to participate in that. But I do feel sad sometimes, like if he has a margarita in a restaurant or like where we're about to go on a cruise and he's probably going to have a couple drinks in Hawaii. Like he's, he should if he wants to. And I'll look at his cocktails and I'll just be like, oh, I wish I could do that. Like, that'll kind of be my thought. And then I know, like, I can't 
And then I list out all the bad things and the reasons why I can't and it makes the thought pass. But I have those little sad thoughts. I wouldn't call them exactly cravings, but I have moments of sadness. Like I had one the other night, we were watching two couples who met up for dinner. It was date night and they shared a bottle of wine. And I said to my husband, I was like, I'm sad that we never got to go out with another couple and share a bottle of wine. And he looked at me and he laughed and he was like, you don't want to share a bottle of wine with three other people. I would never (laughs) share. (laughs) Never share. That's torture. Sharing bottles with people is torture. I would be sitting there building a resentment. Like, why are they drinking out of my bottle? Like, gosh, do they need to pour that much in their glass? You know, like we're going to run out or something. They're not even enjoying it as much as me. (laughs) They shouldn't get any. It's so ridiculous. So we talked through that and it and that always helps me. Yeah, I would say it just makes me a little sad occasionally, but thankfully he's been super supportive and accommodating. If he was drinking wine around me, I would probably have struggled a lot in that first year. I think that's a good point to talk about too, even with non-alcoholic stuff. I get asked all the time, like, what are your thoughts on non-alcoholic drinks? For me, I don't mess with it. Like I I don't care. You know, I It just doesn't matter to me either way. Like what's in my glass does not create my experience and make it fun or not fun. So I don't I don't have like that thing. But I will say like I do understand because it is so romanticized in our culture overall. Right. So I do understand, you know, wanting to sort of be a part of and and feel a part of things. But I think it's really important to not drink a non-alcoholic version of what your favorite drink was. Because that can be so triggering in so many ways. And I was tequila, right? I was a beer drinker for the longest time because you can drink like a million of them and still have some semblance of normalcy, um, which was perfect for me. But later, you know, I tequila was the greatest love of my life. And I was in Southern California, right? Tequila, it's it's a whole thing and a whole community like wine is now tequila has that vibe there. And even to this day, like I promise you, I would never want to have like a non-alcoholic tequila. Like I'm not drinking an alcohol-free margarita. Like I'm just not doing it because tequila is probably the only thing that can make me romanticize a little bit, like even smelling it. And I was telling my listeners, I don't know, it's probably a year ago or something. There was a show on Netflix and I started watching it and it's family business and blah, blah, blah. And their business was a tequila Distiller, like that's what they did. Their family business was tequila. I had to stop watching the show because they're having all these extravagant, beautiful parties and all the beautiful glassware trays of tequila. And my little brain just couldn't handle it. I was like, I cannot watch this. Like I'm daydreaming about tequila. And again, I don't want to drink. Like a drink would destroy my whole life. I have no desire to drink, but I have to be mindful of my brain and that it has its own process. And I have to respect that, you know. So if you're a wine drinker, it's probably not a great idea to drink non-alcoholic wine. If you're a beer drinker, don't drink non-alcoholic beer, right? Drink non-alcoholic something else. Because I think all those things can be very tricky, especially if you don't have the self-awareness to catch yourself. 
Have you tried any non-alcoholic stuff? Like, did it trigger you or make you feel weird at all or make weird thoughts come in your head? I'll tell you (laughs) what was weird is I did. I did non-alcoholic beer and... First of all, I drank them exactly like I would drink regular beer. It's like every time the server went by, I was ordering another one, right? I still had like almost a $100 tab for my non-alcoholic beer. And at some point, and then I had to go to the bathroom every 15 minutes, right? Just like when you drink. Then I I had this moment that I caught myself like getting irritated because I wasn't getting buzzed. And I felt like I was putting in the work, right? Like I was doing the work of drinking the drinks, but I wasn't getting the reward. And that was the only thing I had, just a weird moment of irritation, like where is my buzz? But that was enough for me to know that I have no business drinking that stuff. Like, what's the point anyway? You know, and there's a lot of other things that taste way better than beer. (laughs) I don't care how cool it is because now there's all these super cool, you know, non-alcoholic microbrews, like all the, it's a whole thing now, but I don't care how good the beer is or how good you tell yourself it is. It's just like tequila. I promise you there are a thousand other things on the planet that taste way better that I would rather drink. I think that's really, really interesting. The way that your mind was working while you were drinking that and that you were getting irritated. A lot of people reach out to me about non-alcoholic drinks and the general thing that I see from people that are anti-NA drinks is like, it'll make me want the real thing. And I think that this was the first time that I'm really appreciating how that can happen. Like, I know that can happen. That thought process. Yeah, I'm really because that doesn't happen to me. And I'm really understanding now, like how someone could get there. So thank you for that, first of all. But I just think that that's fascinating. Like, I'm putting in the work. That was the best. Yes, like I was doing the work. (laughs) I was dedicated. I'm going to the bathroom every 15 minutes. (laughs) I'm doing it. I'm paying my dues. Now give me my reward. But, you know, if you think about it, there's a whole thing. And in old school, you know, obviously I've been sober a long time and I got sober in 12 steps. And how I was taught in the beginning was... There is a danger in trying to recreate your old life, right? Like I'm really moving into a fresh chapter. I don't want to do anything the same in my sober life the way I did it in my drunk life. I just don't. And I think there's a lot of potential danger in that also. It's like you're trying to recreate. So instead of starting a new fresh chapter and and really focusing on building the next version of yourself and what your life is going to look like, you're recreating those old scenarios. And I had this kind of driven home with me again earlier this year. I did Whole30. Have you ever heard of Whole30? It's a meal plan, like super clean eating, right? It's just whole foods in their whole forms, no processed foods, sugar, any of that stuff. And I'm a big Whole30 fan. And even in Whole30, they tell you, don't try to recreate your dessert experiences, right? Don't go scouring the internet for recipes to make banana muffins, you know, that are whole foods, because all you're doing is keeping yourself stuck in that addictive thinking. And I was like, gosh, AA gets such a bad rap for for this same concept, but Whole30 seems to pull it off and nobody minds, you know? I'm actually really passionate about that because I see a lot of like fitness people online with these hacks 
to make these low calorie desserts or you see like the lean cuisines and all these like imitations of the real thing. And I struggled with disordered eating before I discovered that alcohol just worked better. But I was always trying to get on those things and have the low calorie alternative, like trick my brain into being satisfied. And what I found, and this probably isn't the solution for everybody, it's just my experience. But when I went and did a lot of therapy, and also just allowed myself to have the actual thing on occasion, I didn't have the cravings all the time and the same problem. It was the trying to recreate the having like this bad stuff, you know, quote, all the time, but in a healthy way that caused so much cravings and like obsession and problems for me. And I think a lot of people with alcohol, we don't want anything to have to change. We we think like, I'm still fun. I can still go out and do everything that I was doing before. And and I can socialize the same and do the same stuff at night and I just have to not drink. And it is really important to change your lifestyle and change what you're doing and maybe change who you're hanging out with. And I think the more that you do that, the less cravings that you'll have. I think it's when we put ourselves in the exact same situation, just with no alcohol, that we're reminded of drinking alcohol in that situation. I would say it definitely triggers something in your brain, right? As you, obviously, this is your area of expertise. Like your brain has its own process. Your brain has its own way of storing information and being triggered, right? So just like with sugar, you know, having all of those quote unquote healthy dessert options, it still would keep me locked in craving. It would continue the craving cycle. And I feel like if I was running around doing non-alcoholic beers or non-alcoholic wine or not, I think there's like a non-alcoholic gin, like there's so much stuff now that would keep me locked into my old life. And my old life didn't serve me. If my old life served me, I would have stayed. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't have left it. But listen, again, I've had, I have a ton of clients that if they're wine drinkers, they'll do a non-alcoholic beer with their spouse at dinner and they're perfectly fine. And that's why I think the differentiator is you have to drink something that wasn't your drink of choice, right? So it's not what you're going to crave anyway, right? Like even if it had alcohol, that's not what you would be drinking. Yeah, exactly. Like when my husband and I go out, I can have a non-alcoholic beer when I'm out with my husband and it's not a thing for me. Um, Or I get like a mocktail occasionally. I don't do that too often because it's hard. I worry about like them making it the real thing. Um, But it's not a problem. But the first time that I ever had non-alcoholic wine, I felt intense guilt. I felt like I was doing something wrong. And I've also tried non-alcoholic tequila. I was a wine drinker and a vodka drinker. If I really was in the mood to like ruin my night, I would drink vodka. (laughs) But I tried a non-alcoholic tequila because I used to always romanticize margaritas, like I said a little earlier. And I thought like, maybe I can have an alcohol-free margarita. And it smelled like the real thing and the smell made me feel weird. It tasted like the real thing, which was weird. But my mind was like, you need to add more to your drink. Don't let your husband see you do it. Like It's like it's water. It's like tequila flavored water. Like there's if he sees me add more water to my drink, that's 
you know, so I was having really strange thoughts like that. So I think you do have to be super mindful of what you're consuming and like what it's what it's setting off because we shouldn't have thoughts like that with water. That's old behavior, right? And I don't, again, I don't want old behavior in my new life. I want to be so mindful of all of those things because I don't want to fall back into those patterns. Were you resistant to this idea of needing to change your life when you stopped drinking or did you know that that was part of it? There was no question I needed to change my life. <laughs> like, it was a mess. You were happy to do it. <laughs> yes, I was happy to do it. I was happy to have guidance, you know, and that's really a huge part of what AA was for me. Of course, back then, you know, we didn't have all the options. AA is what was available and that's where you went. And, uh, and it saved my life. You know, I'm so grateful for the, every piece of wisdom I got from those rooms and the support and the love and the acceptance and the friendships. And it was life changing. But had I not done that, right? And this is where I feel so bad for people now, because everybody, of course, everybody wants to do it on their own. We all want to do it on our own. But if that was realistic, then everybody would do it successfully the first time and we wouldn't have 14,000 treatment centers in America. You know, like the doing it on your own fallacy is just not realistic. So I think people get so caught up in it. You just nailed it a few minutes ago too. Like they want to quit drinking and they don't want to change anything, but that doesn't really work. If just putting the drink down is the only thing you're doing, like that's not sustainable. I had to change my life. Not to mention, it's like these life phases that you have, right? Like people come in and out of your life and you move from one phase to the next phase or chapters as we call them a lot. And my chapter was changing and all the people I was surrounded by weren't changing right? So all of a sudden, we had less things to talk about and less reasons to spend time together. And not that I didn't love my friends that I was drinking with at the end, for sure. I love them. But our lives just started going very different directions. I don't love them any less. But they also weren't reaching out to me asking me to go do non-drinking things, right? Because our friendships really were based on drinking. Again, not that there wasn't love there. They just weren't deep, true friendships based on authenticity and <laughs> intention, right? So I think you have to let things go. I wasn't going to the same places. I wasn't hanging out with the same people. Really early on for me, my life got very small. And that's exactly how I wanted it because I wanted to feel safe I wanted to be as comfortable as I could when things were uncomfortable, right? So I really went to work and I went to meetings and that was about it. And if I hung out and did anything else, it was with other sober people. And that was my new life. And it was really fun. And it was kind of a love and acceptance that I had never experienced before. It's the first time I ever felt like I was around people that I could truly be 100% myself. And they were the same, right? We, you know, we all have a little twisted sense of humor. And it just, it was incredible. It was really incredible. But I just, I didn't want to be doing the same things because how I did things almost cost me my life and almost cost somebody else their life, right? So for me, it was like a no brainer. Yeah, of course, I'm changing my life. Like I'm not going to quit drinking and do all the same dumb shit I did before. And for me, when I 
quit, I realized like I was actually doing nothing before. Like I was just sitting, uh, my husband calls it sitting places. I was just finding different sitting places <laughs> and just drinking there. Isn't it? It's cute, but it's... <laughs> it's so accurate because I think back now and I'm like, oh my gosh, like how much time did you spend sitting in bars, sitting on bar stools, talking about, I want to do this someday and I want to travel here someday. But I never got my ass off the bar stool long enough to do anything until I was sober, you know? Yep. And what I realized when I quit is like, I can't just sit around. That's going to be really boring and triggering, but mostly it's just going to be really boring. I can't spend all my time doing that. Like I would sleep as late as I could, go to work, sit, Google, am I an alcoholic? <laughs> Come home, drink and sit all night and then go to bed. And on the weekend, I would just sit and drink all day and all night. And it's like, you can't just sit and that's all you do. So I think that helped me too, is like realizing that I wasn't, I wasn't doing anything before. And if I went to socialize and I went out, I was too drunk to even really, like my body was just, my body was around, but my mind was already gone because I was so much drunker than anyone else, even though we think that they drink like we do. So I was also happy to, to change my life and get power and control back into my life and, and make it whatever, whatever I wanted. What happened with your friendships when you got sober? Like, did you have really, did you have actual friendships? Cause I know some people have this too. Like I have two clients I work with right now who have friend groups that they've had since like high school, you know, so those are real authentic friendships. I just didn't have that. Everybody for me was very surface level and it was very based on drinking. I had one or two long-term real friendships, but the majority of the people in my sphere were just BS drinking buddies. What was your situation like? Yeah, I had some long-term friends, but I used to get mad at them because they didn't want to drink. So I stopped hanging out with them. And all of my friends, when I was drinking, they wanted to binge drink. And whether they struggle or don't, I don't know. But I think they saw me as that like once every few weeks drinking buddy that they could go party with. But they didn't know that I was doing that every day, <laughs> either with them or with someone else or by myself. And when I quit and I wasn't that party friend that you can like blow off steam with, they didn't really want to hang out with me anymore. And I, I stopped getting invited to parties. And I think that in the beginning, it hurt my feelings. And I'm like, see, quitting drinking it ruined all my friendships and no one likes me anymore. And I make everyone uncomfortable. But really, I think they were trying to help me because they didn't want me to be uncomfortable at the drinking party. That's how I've decided to see it now. But yeah, most of those friendships faded away because when you're out drinking, you're not even talking about anything. You're just talking about drinking or you're complaining about your husband or complaining about your job like you do every single time. And when you're not drinking, it's like, I don't really want to complain about my husband anymore. My husband's actually really nice to me. <laughs> So now I don't have anything to add there. And like my job, it used to suck, but now I'm working on improving my emotional intelligence and working harder at it, or I found a better opportunity and I don't have anything to complain about there either. So I, I didn't know what to talk to them about. And yeah, they faded away, but it, it made room for real friends where we care about each other and we remember each other's birthdays and 
and know if someone is having a hard time, like we can lean on each other. And so it, it is scary when that happens, but those aren't actual friends. Those are just people. It's so you don't have to drink alone at the bar. That's right. That's right. And that I feel like it's so similar to other periods of life, right? Like high school, like you don't hang out with all the same people that you hung out with in high school, college, maybe you had a job and you worked there for seven, eight, 10 years, and you had certain friends there. And now you've moved on, you don't hang out with all those same people. Like it is just a life event that we that friends come and friends go, right? So to me, it didn't feel like such a tragedy. You know, it's like, okay, we had these great years together and drank and I love them. And now it's time for me to do this other stuff. And if they want to come with, I'm happy to have them. Not even saying that I had some expectation that they were going to quit drinking. But listen, all of those friends of mine could have easily been calling me going, hey, do you want to go to breakfast? Do you want to go see a movie? Do you want to go? You know what I mean? Like, there's a lot of things we can go do not drinking. And I wasn't getting those calls from those people. So that was a great indicator for me that our time in each other's lives was probably done. And that's okay. I like that you keep referencing this as being like a phase. And there are phases in our lives. It's not like you become an adult and then that's your life forever. There are like some people in personal development will call it seasons, like the season of your life. But when you're a kid, you have your interests and the things that are important to you and the things you worry about. And it's different when you're a teen. And then when you're an adult and you're in college, it's different again. And it's okay to have a different phase. It's okay to move into a different period of your life and have some things fade away or change. And I think being resistant to change makes it easier to go back to drinking. Yeah, because there's a lot of certainty in that drinking life, right? Like we've put a lot of time and dedication and a lot of practice into curating that life. So it's very predictable. And certainty is one of the things that human beings crave. And all of a sudden you quit drinking or you make some other change. You get divorced or go through a breakup, right? Change jobs, like anything massive like that, all of a sudden everything's uncertain. You have no idea what things are going to be like, how you're going to feel, if you're going to be good at it or if you're going to be terrible at it. You know, is it going to be unbearable? Like everything becomes uncertain. And I think it's a natural response to want to run back to the certainty. But if that certainty is so toxic and unhealthy, I just have to create a new certainty. And you know what? If quitting drinking really happens to suck and it's miserable and it's the worst and you regret it, alcohol is always going to be there. It's not going anywhere. It's very available. It's very accepted. It's not. So if that provides some comfort, but I think it it is scary to change your life. It is scary to make such a big step and worry what other people are going to think about. But we're blabbing about it on our podcast every week and, and on Instagram and in your Facebook group and everything. And for a reason, people are writing books and doing all these cool things and starting companies and living their best lives because it's pretty good. And I would just challenge anyone who's scared of making a change to, to just give it a chance. Because if your current life was the most amazing situation, you wouldn't be considering it. Amen to that. Change is not that scary. We love to really blow it out of proportion and make it into this terrifying thing. It change is really not that big of a deal. And 
It also can be very motivating and inspiring. Like it's fun to be stimulated and have to figure out a new way to do things. And what's your new normal going to be? You know, instead of getting sad about it, get curious about it. Like, oh, I wonder what this will be like. I wonder how this is going to go. I wonder how this will turn out. You know, like it's fun. It's fun to change and grow and evolve. I agree. So if you could give one piece of advice to someone who is struggling with cravings or the idea that things have to change, what would you say? This is where the one day at a time thing really comes in handy. Because usually when we start freaking out about things, it's future tripping, right? We're thinking about things in the future and how will this be and what will that be like and how will I feel and how's that going to go and will I be able to do it? So if you can stay in the moment and just be in the moment, I know a big thing for me early on is I was 10 minutes at a time, right? So when my brain would start chirping away, like, oh, it's eight o'clock. Are we going to have a drink? Are you ready to have a drink? I think we should have a drink. You know, and all that chatter would start. I would just distract myself for 10 minutes, you know, whether it was cleaning out a cabinet or starting a conversation with somebody like whatever the thing was, just 10 minutes. And then after 10 minutes, I would check in with my brain and see how it was doing. And if it was still chirping, then we would do another 10 minutes, right? And that's how I would just just get through those moments. I'll say too, if you want to, you're really playing with fire if you want to entertain the thought of someday I can drink again, right? Like you're already setting yourself up for failure. And I think this was one of the greatest things I did when I quit drinking. And I did the same thing when I quit smoking. I would not allow myself to even entertain the thought of one. It was not an option. And, and I would have an active conversation with my brain when it would go, oh, we could have a drink. I'd be like, no, we don't drink anymore. We're not drinking. Figure something else out. That's not how we do things anymore. Figure something else out. Like I just would not even entertain it. And if you want to entertain those thoughts of maybe someday, maybe I could have just one, maybe I could drink this one time, you're going to lose that battle every single time. Because by the time you're trying to regain some control over alcohol, you're only trying to control something because you've already lost control. You've already lost. (laughs) Like it's done. So really just shutting it down, distract yourself 10 minutes at a time, do not overthink the future because you have no idea what your thought process is going to be like or how much your growth is going to be even two weeks at a time, you know, or 30 days down the road, you're going to look at things so differently. So it's pointless to sit at day one freaking out about something that might or might not happen at day 30, right? It's like we got to handle that stuff when we get there. I did future tripping a lot. Everybody does. It's an anxiety thing. Yeah. Like way into the future, like like a year. It was, I don't recommend because there was nothing that I had to worry about by the time the thing got there, but I worried about it for a year. I remember a lady saying in AA early on, she was talking about, she was um, looking at her son. She's like, I was just looking at him this morning and I was thinking, gosh, medical school is going to be so hard because she was a doctor. Her husband was a doctor. She's like, medical school is going to be so hard. She goes, and then I took a minute and I reminded myself, he's five. I was like, it's so true. Like we'll create these whole conversations and arguments in our heads with people that will probably never happen. Like it's just crazy how much energy we put into freaking out about stuff that really usually never even happens. Yeah, I completely agree. And I was going to say, try to get to acceptance as fast as possible. So I won't add to that, but I will add in your first 
30 days, I think it's really important to change your routine. I think whatever you were doing when you were drinking, you should not do that. Like I was sitting around watching TV and getting drunk. So I didn't sit around and watch TV. So I think what just disrupt your routine, whatever you are doing, just try to not do that because you're going to be reminded of doing it with alcohol. And if you're doing something completely different, you don't have like an alcohol memory or a cue associated with it. So it's less likely that your brain is going to start like reminding you like, oh, drinking would make this TV show so much less boring. So I would say just disrupt your routine, do different stuff, but a thousand percent like get to acceptance, let it go. I thought I was the first person to ever be cured. (laughs) And I wasn't. And we're still waiting for that first person (laughs) to be cured. And I think we're going to be waiting for all eternity. Where do you what do you think for you was like the best change you made early on that you didn't do consciously? Like when you look back now where you're like, oh, my gosh, I'm so glad I did that. Um, The best change in early sobriety that like helped me out the most That's a really tough question. I would say um, I took on a passion project and I got excited about something again. When I was drinking, I wasn't excited about anything except if it was time to drink or if time to drink was getting close. So I took on a passion project, which was learning about how alcohol affects the brain, which I still do passionately today. But I think finding passion again and finding that I could be excited about something and interested and that I could follow through on a project and actually stay committed to something without giving it up and quitting. I think that really helped me and it helped me get some like life back into me again and like wake up every day, like not feeling depressed about the day, feeling like, oh, today, like I have something interesting to do later. I'm looking forward to it. What would you say for you? I think really, I mean, not having any idea how valuable it was going to be for me really was just going to AA because I went just because that's where you go, right? (laughs) Or back then, that's where you go. You have to stop drinking. That's where you go. I had no idea how valuable it was going to be. And I'm really grateful that I just had the willingness to, to just sit down and shut up you know, to not fight it. And I think that goes to your point too, is that acceptance. Like I was just willing and I was fully in acceptance. I was like, cool, just show me what to do. Like I'm in, I'm teachable. Just (laughs) tell me how to do it and I'm happy to do it. But I didn't know all the other things that would come with just sitting in that room, you know, and I'm so, so grateful for that experience. Yeah, being open is really important. But thank you so much for doing this with me. This We have to do it again. This was really fun to be co-hosts for a day. Where can we connect with you and learn more about your work? So everywhere at Addiction Unlimited, all the socials, well, most of the socials, I'm old. So there are some of them that I just don't even <laughs> know about, you know, like I, I don't tweet and like Twitter never stuck with me. Uh, it was a little too high maintenance for me. But yeah, definitely Facebook and Instagram for sure. And, and the podcast addictionunlimited.com. What about you? How do we find you? So you can search for Sober Powered. That's my website, podcast, Instagram, my group, all the things. Uh, very easy to find. What is your favorite thing about having a membership community? 
My favorite. Oh, that's so hard. I feel like my favorite thing is just how nice everyone is. And I know a lot of people come in and they're afraid and they're like, I don't know who these people are. Do they all have long term sobriety? And it's just me struggling. And then everyone's just so welcoming. And to see like the newbies kind of blossom and get comfortable or see them like come into a meeting, camera off in the chat, shy. And then at the end, they force themselves to say hello. And then they're a meeting machine after that. Like, I just love to see people blossom, I think, and get comfortable in a group. Yeah, thank you. That's a nice question. I like to reflect on that. I love those groups. That's so nice. What was your favorite part of being an interventionist? I think that's really cool background. You know, there are so many cool things about doing interventions. I think it's it keeps you on your toes, right? Because you really, I always say being an interventionist is more about a personality than anything else because you really have to be able to manage 10 things at once and pivot very quickly. You know, you kind of never know what's going to come out. Not that interventions are typically super dramatic, but you know, it's... Yeah, you got to be able to manage a lot of personalities and keep a room calm. And always for me, the my biggest goal is because I'm usually the only other addicted person in the room, right? Like we're doing this intervention on this person and the family, whether they're in denial or whatever, you know, like me and that person are the only two people with addiction sitting there. So I feel like it's so easy for us to connect because there is that love and acceptance. Like I just feel like people that have this thing, we connect on such a soul level and it's so different than how I connect with other people in the world. But yeah, it it's just fast. It's exciting. It's stimulating. It's absolutely incredible when you really connect with somebody and you get them help and you can shift their perspective about what it's going to be like to be sober and go to treatment and really put a positive connotation on that instead of a negative one. It's like the best work. That's amazing. I'm so happy that we got to do this today. I'm going to put everything in the show notes. So all the links to connect with you. And thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Thank you. You've reached the end of another great episode of the Addiction Unlimited podcast. Candid and honest conversation about addiction and recovery. Be sure to visit us at addictionunlimited.com to join the conversation and access show notes and links to everything we talked about. Love this episode? Please take 30 seconds to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes to help us improve and give you the information you want. Thanks for listening. See you next week.